0: Welcome. It's time to elevate your consciousness and tune in. This is Mastermind with your host, Dr. Rebecca. This show is about possibilities. If you're successful, ready, and highly motivated to make the necessary changes in your life, we'll provide the tools, direction, and encouragement to help you along the way. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca.
1: And welcome back to Mastermind. This is your host, Dr. Rebecca, and I have a very special guest with us today. Um, this is Jennifer Arnett Price. She's a good friend of mine, and she is also um, an attorney, and she's the author of a new book called Empowered, and the book is about empowering parents um, in the school system, and uh, sorry, i want to start that again. I didn't read the whole title of the book. Okay. Welcome back to Mastermind. This is your host, Dr. Rebecca. We have a very special guest today. This is a friend of mine, Jennifer Arnett Price, who is an attorney and an author, author of the new... What is going on with me? I'm sorry. I've, <laughs> I did this one other time with this guy. I thought I think he thought it, I was crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Okay. And Welcome back to Mastermind. This is your host, Dr. Rebecca, and I have a very special guest with us today. This is Jennifer Arnett-Price. She's the author of a new book called Empowered, using real case examples to look deeper into IEP management. Um, Jennifer Arnett-Price, welcome to Mastermind. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so your book is excellent. I want to tell people a little bit. And um, it's cool because I've been with you through this journey. So uh, we've been friends for years, and it's really exciting to see you go through the steps along this journey. I think we met when you were in the district attorney's office.
2: Yeah. And
1: um, your story is really cool. So I just wanted to know uh, first if you could let our listeners know. A little bit about yourself, where you've been, and um, how you uh, came to this point in your career.
2: Sure, yeah. So, I uh, have been practicing law in general for just over 10 years, and I've done all I'm based out of Pittsburgh, and I've done all my practice here in the Pennsylvania area. Um, So, I started out as an assistant district attorney prosecuting uh, adult. defendants. And I did that for about five years or so. And then I moved over to the juvenile division and became a prosecutor in the juvenile division. Mm -hmm. And the juvenile division was when I was already beginning to think that I was ready to leave and do something else. I just wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to focus my energies on. I knew I didn't want to leave and become a full-time criminal defense attorney. But outside of criminal defense, you know, what else are you going to do? I'm not, I wasn't sure. So I just mm-hmm. was prosecuting <laughs> juvenile cases. And I remember I've always been a big advocate of education and was raised to believe that ed- education is, you know, pretty much uh, an equalizer and can, is the one thing that no one can take away from you. And right. I can remember being in the courtroom many, many, many times and parents would had to explain to the judge why their child is missing so many days out of school, um, why their grades, why their child's grades are so poor, you know, what's going on. And a consistent theme that I heard more often than I should have, at least was that parents were complaining that the school wasn't following the IEP. Hmm. And they would say, Oh, well, they call me every day saying we can't handle him. Come pick him up, come pick him up. Or, you know, he um they file truancy charges on me because he's you know not going to class or whatever and they don't follow the iep it says what tells them what to do in the iep and they don't follow it they just call me and when a child gets charged with a crime they have a, a juvenile probation officer and that probation officer before each court hearing always puts together what's called a predisposition report Mm-hmm. In juvenile court, you're not the juveniles in Pennsylvania. At least, are not sentenced the way adults are sentenced. They call it a disposition. So, juvenile probation officers put together a predisposition report so that you can read about the background of the child in um, your consideration for what the disposition should be in the end if okay. the child pleads guilty and in that disposition in the predisposition report there was always a paragraph about education Hmm. and more times than not I would always read that the child has an IEP you know or maybe a 504 plan but I tended to read the, the letters IEP more more times than 504 and so I then began to question you know what exactly is this and you know how can how can I get involved in this? And people began to stop referring me to school lawyers and began somebody finally knew someone who actually represented a child. And that began my journey as to how, cool. once I'd left the DA's office, I was gonna specialize in the special education law representing children when they
1: are having issues with the school districts. Okay. So I, I like that. So basically, you're looking at these cases, at the juvenile cases, and in the predisposition report, and I didn't know this, um, there's always a paragraph about education. And so it just brings back the point that education and um, the child's um, role in the system is so important, in the educational system, is so important and in shaping them. And then, you know, in a, lot, in a in large part, if they have an IEP and they're not being taken care of, where people are not being good stewards of these children with IEPs in the education system, then they end up in the juvenile uh, justice system.
2: Yes, and the judges, uh, I I was not in one judge's courtroom that was not uh, questioning how the child was doing in, in school. Every single judge Mm -hmm. on every single child, whether you had an IEP or not, just just by virtue of the fact that this is a juvenile in my courtroom, every judge would always look at the probation officer in question. How is the child doing in school? How are his grades? Um, what's the attendance like? So mm-hmm. the juvenile probation officers knew that they needed to stay on top of that. And many, many times they would even come in with either an attendance record or uh, a report card or some sort of you know, mid-report mid card so that they could update the judge as to how the child is doing
1: academically. Right. Okay, so this, and this brings me back to uh, um, another point, which is, uh, you know, when we see how children are doing in the school system, we, we tend to think that teachers are the best judges of this and that, you know, we just look at report cards. Um, but your book makes a special point to focus on parents as advocates and as, on parents as the experts, um, of their children. And I really like that because I think a lot of parents, we tend to defer to the school system or defer to people who have special degrees in this or supposedly know our children best. Um, But you make the point that we know our children best. We've known them since they were born and we are the best advocates for our children um, in navigating the system. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. So I yeah, I definitely start um, the book and even my, my line of thinking that the parent knows best. Um, I start the book out by talking about a legal phrase, which is child find. And that's mm-hmm. the legal obligation that schools have on identifying, locating and evaluating a child suspected of having a disability. Uh, but at the end of the day, parents know their kids best and I emphasize that to just let parents know if regardless of whether the the school has instituted the paperwork in order to get the evaluation process started or at least the permission to evaluate started uh, the parent can certainly do that on his or her own and it's just a matter of putting it in writing and sending it to the school district because once you put it in writing and send it to the school district, legally the school is then required to respond and they also have to respond in writing whether Mm -hmm. they're going to evaluate and if they're not, why they're not going to evaluate. So it's I emphasize that because many times schools delay evaluations for one reason or another Mm -hmm. or many times... The child might get evaluated and the evaluation, the, or I'm sorry, the diagnosis could be wrong and the parent feels that there's something more to it. I mean, you know, if I could just say quickly, I just spoke at a conference in Baltimore over the yeah. weekend about autism and the black community and how black kids on average are diagnosed with autism roughly two years on average, two years later than mm-hmm. white children and how that can affect the school to prison pipeline. Um, And there are many people in the audience with children uh, with autism who stated that they had to go and get three to four referrals and diagnoses before finally one came back showing autism because they knew that their child did not have ADHD or conduct disorder, which is uh, disabilities that tend to be more reflected in the black community
1: as opposed to autism. That is really interesting. So um, a couple of things about that. One, parents getting uh, their children, parents uh, of autistic children getting their uh, children diagnosed late or later um, if they're black versus if they're white because two years is a big time difference, especially in elementary school, Um, developmentally, you know, socially, academically, all of that, that's, you know, the difference between kindergarten and second grade or, you know, second grade and fourth grade, those are huge leaps. Yes. Um, and all and the so, research
2: shows that early intervention is best. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And, and, I, and I would imagine, I mean, not only, not only do they not get the instruction that, that they need or the attention um, or the educational plan that they need, but they'll also get more and more frustrated in that system And it'll exacerbate the problem, and so the you know the conduct disorder diagnosis and the ADHD and all this other stuff that they're getting labeled with, um, I could see that those behaviors manifesting even though they're autistic. I could see these behaviors. So basically, the teachers doubling down or the experts doubling down on these wrong diagnoses because the family and the parents uh, or the child are getting more and more frustrated inside of the system.
2: Exactly. Yep. Yep. It just becomes a a domino effect.
1: Yeah. Um, And something else you mentioned, which, which is interesting, too. So I was always taught that a school was obligated if you asked for an IEP that they were obligated to give one. But what you're saying is that they're obligated to give an answer so they can actually reject your request. They can say, no, we're not going to do this as long as they have a good reason. Um, they can, yep, okay. they,
2: and then that can, uh, if you disagree with that, then you can send them to a due process hearing um, and request the hearing officer to demand them to give you an evaluation. But, yep, they can definitely deny, and then they have to put in writing the reasons why they don't feel like your child should uh, or is, would be eligible or is why they feel like the child is not suspected of having the disability.
1: Mm-hmm. How often do you see this in in black communities? Is there is there any uh, research to show that this is happening more in black communities than in other communities where schools are refusing to give um, IEPs to children of color?
2: So I haven't um, seen it. Well, what so the issue, as I've seen it, is that schools tend to ignore requests for evaluations when parents go in and request it in person. And oh. so it's done, the request is made mm-hmm. orally. And so that's why I always emphasize to parents that they put it in writing. And, it, you know, and I mean, in theory, it really, I try to get parents to... Write it out on or type it out onto something, not just send an email, Um, but at least just have some sort of writing. You can, bicker about what type of writing is sufficient, but at least have some sort of writing. That way there's, if nothing else, there's a paper trail because what happens in the end, of course, is that it then becomes, he said, she said, well, you told me yesterday or, Mm you know, or, and the parent is like, no, I told you six months ago. And so to prevent (laughs) all of that, he said, she said, then you should put it in writing.
1: Yeah. Um, so, and, and to, so for parents, this is good because we tend to, um, we tend to to think at least I do a lot of times that things are done best in person, face-to-face, you know, relationship wise and eye contact and all that things that we're, um, kind of, uh, t- at least old school. <laughs> These new, new things are always done through text and email, but, um, a lot of us think, you know, that, um, face-to-face is good and that's fine. But you, if you want to do face-to-face, if you want to talk to somebody, you still need a paper trail. You still need a physical record of your conversation um, with someone in order to uh, justify anything else that you do further on down the line or ask for uh, further on down the line for your child so that there's always a record of when you re- made a request, you know, if and when it was responded to and you know, what the content of that response was.
2: Yeah, and I don't think I answered your question directly about the black community. I won't say that I see it more prevalently in the black community, uh, Mm -hmm. but because I, um, I hear these concerns from both sides from from all races and ethnicities that the school, you know, I've requested it and it's, and they never gave it to me.
1: Okay. Okay. So, um, and back to, so that's good, and at least in your personal experience, there hasn't been a particular uh, bias toward granting or not granting that. Um, I just wanted to circle back. We have a couple more minutes before the break. I just wanted to recap a little bit what we talked about. We're talking uh, with uh, Jennifer Arnett Price, who's an attorney, and she's an author of Empowered, uh, Using Real Case Examples to Look Deeper into IEP Management. And we've just been talking a little bit about her story and her journey from the district attorney's office and seeing a need in the community for parents to become more informed and more empowered in in the system, in the educational system, so that their children don't end up in the uh, criminal justice system. And uh, we've been just really emphasizing the role of the parent and the power of the parent in this uh, process and advocating for their child and for making sure that their child gets what they need as early as they need, and so uh, stay with us after the break. We'll continue this conversation, and you're listening to Mastermind.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com/forward/slash/voiceamerica. And find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: You are listening to Mastermind with Dr. Rebecca. To reach out to us during the live show, please call in to 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to Dr. Huey at lifthealing.com. Now, back to Mastermind.
1: And welcome back to Mastermind. This is your host, Dr. Rebecca. And we are talking with Jennifer Arnett Price, an attorney and author of Empowered, using real case examples to look deeper into IEP management. And before the break, um, we talked about basically the title of the book and empowering parents um, in the process so that they can advocate best for their children. And uh, Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit, you so that this book is really intentionally designed it's very nice. I like the design. Um, I like the colors, everything about it. Um, and from my understanding, this was a very intentional design. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it was. When I sat down with the cover designer, I told her that I I didn't want a whole bunch of bright colors I wanted the tone of the cover to be sort of muted but Mm -hmm. the lettering to be red. Um, Red being a power color Uh, but then I wanted the picture to not necessarily show people themselves but just to show a sort of collaboration. So. I intentionally like this design of the table and then people around the table to show and signify this is the IEP team and we're all collaborating together at one table for the purpose of figuring out the best plan for this child. And then one chair is highlighted in red, red signifying again power and that red or that red colored chair in my head would be the parent. So mm-hmm. now the parent is more empowered and mm-hmm. can become a more uh, integral part or feel like they're a more integral part of the IEP team because they are well equipped by having the book, they have their notes, they're per- you know better prepared to ask very pointed
1: questions and going forward. I really like that. So, um, and and everybody, you have to check out this cover because, and as you talk about your intentional design, it reminds me of um, what we do in hypnosis, which is very subtle and very, um, you know, works with the unconscious mind. And when you look at this and you think about um, red being a power color, and you think about just the suggestion of the parent as the one with the power, when you look at this cover, as a parent automatically, I feel empowered. Um, mm. Yeah, so um, it, it's very, it, it's just a very, very powerful, it's it's elegant, it's simple, and it's a very powerful representation of who we should be in this system and um, the power that we have as, as parents or as guardians, um, you know, grandparents of, of our children. So thank you for that. That was, um, I yeah, really like that. Thank you. So, who is in this room? Who's in the um, the IEP meeting? Um,
2: <laughs> so, that's kind of a loaded question. Who is in the meeting versus who should be in the meeting? Can uh, I different answers. <laughs> um, so, you have the IEP team, and that team can include... So if you have a child who is in general education and then gets removed out a couple for one or two classes for special education, then the person in the room will be the special education teacher, the uh, general education teacher, the school psychologist. And if your child is receiving help from any specialist like a speech therapist or an occupational therapist or physical therapist, then those people should be in the meeting And then the parent Mm -hmm. should be in the meeting, and even the child can be in the meeting. Oh. On the meetings where the child is in the meeting, depending on his or her age, if it's Mm -hmm. a younger child, you know, then he may not be in the meeting, but certainly if middle school or high school, then they have been in meetings because you can ask that child specifically, look, this isn't working. What will work for you? You know, or why are you responding this way? What kind of relationship do you have with this teacher? Is there a better teacher you'd prefer to go to, to calm down or whatever. So the child also can certainly be in the meeting as a part of the IEP team. So that's who really should be in the meeting. Anyone mm-hmm. who is interfacing and interacting rather with your child and has to comply and be aware of the IEP that's who should be in the meeting. Um, who actually unfortunately mm-hmm. comes to the meeting well, I'll say who who comes to the meeting in the beginning will be the parent and then uh, the the teacher and maybe the speech therapist. Um, mm-hmm. the meetings begin to grow more and more tense then who will be in the meeting can be all of the people I initially named, the gen mm-hmm. ed teacher, special ed teacher, the specialist, but then it could also be the principal mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. the assistant principal. <laughs> and generally speaking, the the people in the meeting are not seated at a round table the way I have it on the cover of this book the table will be oblong and everyone will be on one side and then the parent will
1: be oh. on the other side.
2: Yeah. Wow. So it really can get very tense. And at that point, that's when parents uh, either look for an advocate or just look for an attorney to attend the meeting with them because they say they walk in, there are, a thousand people and they feel like no one is there for them and the school has an army and then they question well, yeah. who is here for me and i'm all by myself well i feel like it's me against school
1: so it becomes very tense but th- so the parent can bring anybody they want to into the meeting correct
2: they can bring anyone and i advise parents all the time to bring someone whether it's their yeah. sister their friend whomever if not for no other reason than the parent can just focus on advocacy and then the person who comes with them can be the note taker. Mm -hmm. That way the parent doesn't have to try to do two things at one time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the
2: parent also has a witness because it quickly also can become a bunch of he said, Mm -hmm. she said, or I said, I wanted this. You said you were going to give me this. It's not in the IEP. At least the parent has another witness to to you know, corroborate. Yeah, I was there. You did say this is going to go in the IEP and it's not in the mm-hmm. IEP.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, that you just reminded me of um, a doctor's visit, either, you know, inpatient or outpatient where I always encourage people to bring somebody into the office visit with them. One, just for support, just uh, psychologically for support and that feeling that, there's somebody on their side, there's somebody advocating for them and they don't feel like they're alone. When you're in a situation where you feel like you, you don't have the power or that the people are talking about things you don't really understand, then that feeling of being alone is even stronger. But having a family member um, or a friend there um, serves two purposes. One is the support. And then also, like you said, to take notes. Um, because was I really, in, in, in the case of an IEP need to focus on advocacy, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just like in the doctor's office, I really need to focus on listening to um, the doctor and digesting what she's saying. Um, and it's hard to do that and take notes as to you know, your, your brain is doing two different things. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's really important to have somebody there. Um, to sit on if it's that situation to sit on that side of the table and also to to a show of force, a show of power, I should say, to say, you know, I have support too. We might have, you know, five or six people on your side or 10 or whatever it is, but I have support and I'm not gonna, you know, be bullied basically.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely can help change the course of the conversation. If the, once the school sees that the parent is not alone,
1: yeah, yeah. So, um, so in this IEP meeting, um, you mentioned people that should be there and then people that often are there. Um, and one thing that your book talks about is uh, the idea of having experts in, in the room. And for, from my understanding, there are experts that this school will bring in um, or that, who advocate on the school's behalf. Um, I shouldn't say advocate on the school's behalf, who um, may have this, they're picked by the school, let's put it that way. Um, and then you also have parents who might want their own experts involved, and sometimes these experts have uh, differing opinions. How does that play out in this situation? Well, if, so
2: it can play out in different ways based on what what data is presented, and I am a firm believer. I mean, I'm a firm believer in data, but it, it's also required um, by law. So, data meaning if you have a school who is recommending something gets done and they have it in the IEP, you know, that as a, this is a measurable goal, you know, the school is required to then keep the data to demonstrate whether the child is progressing towards that goal. So it can play out in in a meeting different ways, depending on whether the school can present data to support what they're saying And, and also whether the parent can also present data to support what they're saying. So if the school is trying to say, look, we don't want this person to come into our school because we think your child is perfectly fine using this expert, you know, speech therapist or occupational therapist that we have, well, Uh, they need to be able to show the data that some progress has been made as opposed to regression. And many Mm. times schools don't keep data in the first place or the data is just not, is just not showing that progress has been made. It's just maybe from a funding standpoint, they want to use their own people. They don't want to pay someone more money to come in or, whatever the case may be. But mm-hmm. alongside of that, what I tell parents is if you have someone that's coming to see your child after school, maybe in your home, because you receive wraparound services and what mm-hmm. you're doing or what that person is doing in your home is working and mm-hmm. it's working a lot better than what's working at school. Well, you take notes of that or have the person take notes of that so that you then also have the data to support that your child is doing well in the home with this person and is regressing when he's in school with your person. Right. Because then if the school continues to fight and battle and fight and battles, you then at least have that same information to present in front of a hearing officer to demonstrate which experts should be followed. Because at the end of the day, the hearing officer is going to want to know why the school's person should be ignored Mm -hmm. And if it comes down to credibility, uh, then you want your expert to be deemed more credible. Mm -hmm. And other factors that have been considered by the hearing officer is the fact that, or is whether the school's expert and specialist has a better understanding and relationship with your child. So the school can demonstrate, look, this this person is with the child five days a week or, or even one day a week, but has been with them one day a week for a year. So he knows, the expert knows who the child is, whereas this, whoever the parent wants to use has no relationship with the child. They just went to get an evaluation yeah. and the yeah. expert is, has these great suggestions and ideas, but has no idea how they're going to look when they're executed. So we don't even know whether they're going to be effective. Um, so that sort of real-life experience and data has been a big driving force in the hearing officer's decisions mm-hmm. as as to which expert is deemed more credible and which program uh, is could, would be considered more effective. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what I one thing to glean from the book that I tried to make clear in the cases, or I tried to repeat throughout or after some of the cases, is that... At the end of the day, schools are considered experts in the field of education, mm-hmm. and judges are considered experts in the field of law, and they really don't want to be placed in a position of second-guessing the school district's uh, expertise. Okay. So okay.
1: It,
2: it becomes really difficult if you have no data and so you 're now placing the judge in a position to second mm. what the school is doing mm-hmm. because they don 't want to do that. they want to feel like the schools are experts and they know what they 're doing and they 're picking these people for a reason because these people know what they 're doing and 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 so if any if, if anytime a parent places a judge in a position to challenge the school 's mm. you know expertise into what they 're doing in the realm of education and they have nothing to to give the judge to rely upon for challenging that, then it's really not going to go well in their favor.
1: Mm. So what I hear you saying is that really by default, the the judge is going to um, want to, to listen to um, side is not the right word, but they tend to take the school as an expert. So by default, that's their, that's the way they're going to lean unless the parent can bring someone who, is credible as an expert, and that doesn't just mean to go out and pay somebody to say something. They have to show that this person has actually worked with the child and knows the child best. And, and it's, even though they're saying something different than the educational system is or that the school is, but that they know better because they have an intimate relationship with the child.
2: Right, right. And there have been cases that I even mentioned in the book where the, the schools or the parents have gone out to get these experts and through an independent educational evaluation. And those experts have said, look, your child, you know, should be receiving this type of therapy, and this is what should be incorporated in the IEP. I think your child will make better strides and gains if he's in this program, so you should tell your school to implement it, and then the school says, "No, nope, we like our plan, we think it's better, and when it comes down to it, you know, the judge says, look, I'm not gonna, simply because this expert that you have retained parent has said that this is a better program or plan doesn't mean that it really is, but it also Mm. doesn't mean that what the school is doing isn't working.
1: Mm. Um,
2: So it's, you know, judges don't know what to do because they're not in the world of education. So if you can at least give them something, then they will, you have a better chance of having them consider it. So I tell parents, don't go in and just say, no, 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 no. Don't use the school's idea, you know, give, give the judge something to hang their hat on more yeah. than just an outside expert who interviewed your child for an hour or maybe an hour and a half, or even a couple of days, depending on how long the evaluation takes. Um, and, and then it, it, more than that, because the judge is going to want more than that. They're going to consider that expert to maybe be smart and, and intelligent, but not knowing
1: your child. Right. 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 Exactly. That the person has to know your child. Yeah. Good. Okay. So we need to take a break. This is really. I'm learning a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> everybody else is. Um, because so I'll tell you that later. But yes, yeah, so we're going to go to break. When we come back, you've referenced some cases, so everybody, uh, this book has tons of cases and very specific uh, case examples with questions at the end. So I, I just joked with Jennifer. This is like the first law book I ever read that I actually understood, and um, <laughs> and it's which true. is the whole
2: point of it. Which the whole the... point of it. <laughs> I wanted to just sort of you know break it down into very
1: easily digestible information. It it is, it, is. It, it it reads very easily. It has specific cases and it has great explanations. So when we come back, we're going to look at a couple of cases, just so you can get the flavor of what uh, to experience. You're going to experience when you uh, read this book. Um, this is Doctor Huey, Doctor Rebecca. Excuse me. And you're listening to our Mastermind, and we will see you after the break.
0: Sophia and her guests are doing this every day and are sharing how you can step into this power too. Listen to Sovereign Self every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers Channel. to reach out to us during the live show, please call in to one 472 5795 Again, that's one 472 5795 Or you can send an email to Dr. Huey at lifthealing.com. Now, back to Mastermind.
1: Welcome back to Mastermind. This is your host, Dr. Rebecca, and we have a very special guest today, my friend uh, Jennifer Arnett Price, who is an attorney who is the author of a new book called Empowered, using real case examples to look deeper into IEP management. And we have been talking a lot, referencing these cases and talking about um, the parent's role in um, making sure that their child gets what they need in the educational system. And the great thing about this book, um, like I said before, it's, a, it's the first law book that I've understood and been able to read that has uh, cases. And then it also, it has cases that are, are written for people who don't have law degrees. And then it also has explanations of the cases. And um, all of us can find ourselves in one of these cases if we're a parent or if we're a guardian. Um, or a grandparent or not an uncle. Um, Everybody can identify with at least one of these cases, I feel like. So what I wanted to do was just go through a couple cases, one, for the information, and then also so you all can get a sense of what to expect when you pick this book up. So uh, the first case I wanted to talk about is um, on page 28. Um, It says weighing the credibility of experts. So we talked a little bit about experts and, you know, if a parent Brings an expert versus if there's an expert um, that's representing the the school, and uh, can you just tell me tell us a little bit more about this case and um, the lesson we should learn from this case about the credibility of uh, experts?
2: Yeah, so uh, this case is YN, and in the cases because uh, whenever there's a minor involved, I use the child's initials. Mm -hmm. So it's YN versus. Board of Education of the Harrison Central School District, and in that case, the child had, had been evaluated by a couple of different experts, actually, a, a private the psychological um, or psych, a private psychologist conducted an educational evaluation, and then the parents also received an evaluation from an audiologist, which mm-hmm. is... Uh, unusual in, in some worlds. I, it's not unusual necessarily in my world, but it's not a typical evaluation that parents will, will get. Um, although I think it's a great one because audiologists can definitely hone in very well on other disabilities that aren't necessarily picked up upon. And so as a result of this, the diagnoses were ADHD anxiety, but also central auditory processing disorder Um, So the school then created an IEP, Uh, however, the parents still decided to send their child to a private school, and because they felt like the private school would better implement different programs, Mm -hmm. Uh, but then they wanted tuition reimbursement for payment of the private school. Oh, wow. So in the end, the school, or at least initially the school, came up with the settlement, on that whole tuition reimbursement issue. But then when it came time to determine whether the child was gonna come back to the public school and transition back over, uh, they wanted a reevaluation. So another evaluation was conducted, but the parents disagreed with the conclusions of the evaluations, basically saying that the conclusions of of the school psychologists were different than the conclusions of their private doctors and, the program that was suggested by the school psychologists were, was not going to be effective and allow their child to engage in meaningful progress, which is a, a legal term of art, but they felt like it wasn't going to allow their child to, to engage in meaningful progress in the IEP. Mm-hmm. So ultimately mm-hmm. it went to another, it went to a due process hearing and um, the court was left left well, while due process hearing, which then was appealed to a, a district court. And so the court was ultimately having to weigh the decision as to whether the parents privately retained expert. Who gave very specific uh, recommendations for this child's education should be considered more credible than the school's own retained expert, uh, which would right. be the school psychologist and the judge said no. Um, no the school's expert should not be considered less credible than the mm-hmm. parent's expert simply by virtue of the parent's expert being a doctor, you
1: know? Oh, it, right. Yeah. Right. And that goes back to what we said before. And you put a, a note in here too. It says an additional And frequently cited reason given by judges is that courts tend to defer to school districts recommendations for educational programming over privately retained experts. So it's not enough to retain an expert. It's not enough um, that they have letters after their name if they're a doctor. They have to know the child and they have to be able to present um, evidence specific to you know things that they know about that child from a relationship with that child. What's worked Um, in their experience with that child. It's not enough to just go hire somebody that seems like they're an authority because it sounds like in in most cases, the judge is still gonna um, tend to defer to the, the school's authority.
2: Well, exactly. And parents think, I think parents believe that if they go outside and get a private expert, and then submit that those materials to the school district, then the school district must include those recommendations. And that's not that's not what the law says. And I always make parents aware that school districts, especially especially when it gets contentious, school districts do not operate from the stance of what should they do or what would be nice to do mm-hmm. they operate from the stance of what are they legally obligated to do and they're <laughs> not legally obligated to incorporate the recommendations of an outside expert if they have not paid for that expert if the school if 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 a parent gets an, an independent evaluation paid for by the school then they do have to incorporate it but as long as the parent is paying for that outside expert they don't have the school district does not have to Include the recommendations. The school is required to consider the recommendations and in that case specifically the school district could was able in a hearing to point out that they did review the data. And they considered the information, but for their own reasons, they decided not to incorporate it into the IEP and legally they met their obligation and they did not And the court made it clear that school districts are not required to adopt outside experts recommendations.
1: Right. That's an important point to make. Legal legal obligation, not what they what should happen or what you think would be good for um, what you think will be good for the child, but basically what they're le- legally obligated to do. Right, Right. Yeah.
2: because I hear from parents all the time saying, it, they should do this, they should do this. And I tell them, look, mm-hmm. at whether they should do it and whether they have to do it or to, could, can be two different answers sometimes.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, so um, there's another case too. And uh, this case example um, is labeled as a new disability diagnosis. MB versus the city school district of New Rochelle. And this involves a child, um, from my understanding, that the, the child has several medical conditions, um, has an IEP, and it looks like the IEP is not working, um, or the child might not be progressing the way that that he was intended to progress, or they, that they thought he would. And then how to fix that, like how, how does that look, in order, like the IEP is already done, Um, and it's not working well for the child, how do we then revisit the IEP and make sure that things are changed the way? Well, first of all, am I right about the point of this case? I always have to ask that with stuff. And then also, if so, how how does a parent then advocate for their child in that situation?
2: Yeah, so um, in that case, that's the MB versus City School District of New Rochelle where the child was initially uh, diagnosed with a a whole host of medical conditions, including hydrocephalus, um, epilepsy, cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, the child had an IEP. But as you stated, was not really progressing in the IEP or in pursuit to those goals, and there were a number of tests that were done and uh, reevaluations, independent educational evaluations, and so in the end, the parents began to realize that at some point, a couple of years later, she then met the criteria for receiving a diagnosis of autism. Mm-hmm. So then once, she had, once the parents realized that uh, they had a new diagnosis, another IEP was created, the team was convened, but the, uh, the new diagnosis of autism was not incorporated into the new IEP. So when the parents then conducted or filed a complaint for due process, one of the things they did was they said, look, she's been denied her free appropriate public education, which is also a legal term of art for a number of years. And so they went back Mm -hmm. about three years Mm -hmm. to claim that uh, the school was in violation. And the court said, yes, the school is, it has been in violation, but not for as many years as you're saying. And they looked at a number of different things one was progress but one of the things that the court noted was that one of the reasons the school was in violation was because they did not acknowledge the new diagnosis and had they acknowledged the new diagnosis of autism then that may have sort of um, allowed them to incorporate more or different programs or, or or goals or modifications and accommodations in order for the child to make better progress so to take from this, and this is definitely a case where I have questions at the end, You know, mm-hmm. and the first question is, is your child's IEP likely to produce progress as it is written? Um, because that's what the court is going to want to know. How does the IEP read, and is it written in a way that will allow your child to progress? And, and, and then I have as the next question, how does your definition of progress compare with the school's definition of progress? Because I do think that that is an issue that comes up, or I know that's an issue that comes up, but I think that's an issue that parents sort of get caught on and they need to recognize that that word progress is going to look differently. And it many times will look differently from the parent's perspective than from the school's perspective. Mm -hmm. And you have to consider how it's going to look from the law's perspective, because many parents will say, my child's not making progress when the child is making progress, it just may not be the type of progress the parent wishes the child was making. Right. And that's not how the courts will look at it either. They're gonna look as to whether progress is made. And you know, there are definitely even cases where the child um the child made progress, even though the progress was maybe receiving a 70 as beforehand Mm -hmm. I was getting a 60 like that's still technically considered progress and the court takes that into consideration when they're determining whether the school is in violation. Um, And then the last question I have from that case is Did your child previously exhibit behaviors related to a later diagnosis because as I stated, this was a case where she was later diagnosed with autism, and there was one issue came up about Child Find and whether the, the right. school really located, uh, identified, and evaluated her appropriately or whether they dropped the ball on identifying her with another new disability. And so that's why I have that question in there as well.
1: Okay, yeah, so there's, you yeah, know, there's a lot in there. And I like, again, I like um, the format of this spoken and that there are questions called thought questions behind some of these cases. Um, and then quick summaries at the end of others where you can stop and digest the information and, and figure out how it applies to um, your, specific, your specific situation. Um, so, yeah,
2: thought questions, and uh, uh, sorry, Jeff. I could also yeah. just say, you know, when you purchase the book, I leave space for you to take notes as well. Just mm-hmm. to kind of, and you know, the space is it's not a it's not a page long workbook, but I certainly try to leave some space to at least jog your memory. And it's a very short book, you know, a hundred and just over a hundred pages. So I don't list every single case over the course of a year or so, but I list it very specific cases for very specific reasons that i feel like address either common issues or new issues that parents may not have thought about um, and then let the parents know how courts are thinking or ruling on these issues
1: right right so yeah it's just uh, just the right amount of space to jot down notes um and just um, the right amount of um, information um, about the cases so yeah I, i it was it was great um, talking to you. I know we're running out of time here, um, but we we're talking to uh, Jennifer Arnett Price, and we've been talking about her new book. Um, I'll say her first uh, book, correct? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay, I say first because I know there's going to be more. Uh, yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, it's called empowered using real case examples to look deeper into IEP management. And, um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing, um, this information with us. I oh, thanks for to give, me. Yeah, it was, it was great. I want to give people the opportunity to uh, purchase the book. If, um, if we could just, get, so you can find it on Amazon. It's called empowered and it's, um, like you said before, it's a it's a it has red lettering on it, and uh, you can purchase it purchase it on Amazon. But then also let us know uh, what your website is because we can find that on the website as well. Correct?
2: Uh, that's correct. So my website is www. o price. Um, my middle name being O'Neill,
1: <laughs> so it's jennifer
2: Okay,
1: and then so there you get a bonus because you get to read about you know her um, and, and what she does, but then also you can pick up a copy of the book. So um, we are just about out of time, but thank you again for uh, being with us. And hopefully we can have you back and talk a little bit more about, we didn't even get through some of the uh, material in here. It's really rich with um, with information. Um, but, um, and thank you for listening to Mastermind and we will see you again next week.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Mastermind. Please join Dr. Rebecca for another show next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers channel. We'll talk again next week.